0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday debit card purchases with no fees, period. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC.
1: You know, one of the things that I've been reflecting on and looking back on 2020 is like what parts of me change the most. And I honestly think that the part of me that changed the most is like the clothes that I wear. I was kind of a minimalist anyway, before the pandemic, but now it's like the same pair of gray sweat shorts and the same like five or six t-shirts and that's it. I've even noticed that like Instagram has noticed and they send me ads for that kind of attire or like stretchy flannel shirts. Has it changed for you, fashion well, critic from the I Washington mean- Post? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I think the fashion industry is sending you those emails saying, please, please (laughs) don't do this to us.
1: (laughs) That is Robin Gavon, the award-winning fashion critic at The Washington Post.
2: Has my style of dress changed? I would say not significantly, actually. (laughs) Really? I'm stubbornly committed to, like, getting up, working out, showering, and then putting on like a sweater, a skirt, wow. pair of pants, actual waistband, shoes. I know, I'm weird. I, I that's shoes.
1: aspirational. <laughs> Robin is on another fashion planet than the rest of us. So I sort of get it. But maybe you are more like me. Working from home with nowhere to go and no one to impress. I mean, seriously, I am not lying when I say I haven't worn a shirt with buttons in weeks, perhaps months. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and on our episode today, pandemic fashion. As we all know by now, the pandemic has forced a lot of industries to change. But for the fashion industry, that dawning came a little more slowly.
2: You know, I'll use that that old analogy about a frog in the warm water oh God. that slowly yeah. starts to boil. Oof. I, I know, like the fashion industry slowly started to boil.
1: Robin Gavon gave me a sort of timeline.
2: In March, April, there was a sense that everything had come to a grinding halt, certainly. Mm -hmm. But I think there was a lot of projected optimism. And then I think somewhere around the end of the summer, when Mm. it became very clear that sort of runway shows as usual couldn't happen, it became oh my God, we never realized how much we will desperately miss the old ways that we complained about so much.
1: In this chat with Robin, we're gonna talk about the future of fashion and why this industry feeds on fantasy, sometimes to its own detriment. We'll also discuss the power of the Instagram ad and why some luxury companies are actually doing pretty well despite everything. But first, I wanted to get a better sense of how the industry worked before the pandemic and how it might change After,
2: Well, you know, there were one of the the ongoing uh, frustrations with the industry was that it had gotten itself into a situation in which design houses, both high-end and and middle-brow, were really just cranking out collections so quickly. Um, You know, it used to be back in the olden sort of post-war days that... You know, there were really two collections. There was fall and there was spring. Yeah. And if you were a couture house, you did two couture collections. By the time the pandemic hit, if you were a brand that did couture and you also did menswear in addition to womenswear, you were producing, you know, two dozen collections a year. Wait, it was crazy. seriously?
1: So there was spring? Yeah, I mean... There's... There was fall? Was it like winter, summer, solstice? Like, Run me through how many <laughs> season drops were there? <laughs>
2: So let's say you are you have a couture house and you also do menswear. So you have two couture collections. You mm-hmm. have a women's fall collection that's shown on the runway. But on either side of that, you have a pre-collection and you've got this thing called cruise or resort or whatever you might want to call it.
1: LOL. <laughs> and that
2: cruise collection often meant that um, you were going off to some far-flung location, Shanghai, Cuba, uh, New York. These are places where Chanel has had shows. And you would do the collection there. The same thing would happen for the menswear. And you might also have sort of these special one-off collections. So they really added up. And if you were a creative director, you were also flying all over the world, opening stores. Mm. You were dealing with fashion shoots, for advertising campaigns. So you were constantly in motion. Mm. And when the pandemic shut things down, it felt like all of that momentum came to a halt and people thought, okay, we can rethink all this. folks were actually tired. People were exhausted (laughs) physically and mentally.
1: Oh, totally. Well, I mean, me as a lay person, I just feel like every six weeks I would see stories for another fashion week. And for years I was like, how many fashion weeks are there? This feels like too much. And I guess you're saying it was too much.
2: It really was too much. And, you know, you also have to take into account that um, in addition to just putting the clothes on the runway, they are putting those clothes in stores. and Constantly. Trying, you know, and hoping that consumers would buy them. So there was a lot of merchandise going into stores. It overwhelmed consumers. I mean, this was not disposable fashion, you know, we're not talking about $10 t-shirts, we're talking about $500 t-shirts. It it really felt like the industry was coming together. You know, there were like big Zoom meetings with designers and open letters and, you know, conglomerates talking about how they weren't going to do shows on this, you know, crazy schedule. But slowly, 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 it sort of became clear that, you know, fashion is an entire ecosystem. Yeah. And by slowing it down, by cutting out collections, by moving away from elaborate runway shows, you were also cutting back on the need for hairstylists, mm-hmm. photographers, mm-hmm. makeup artists, you know, this entire other universe that sort of depends on that cycle continuing
1: these are jobs that are lost and i think a lot of times when you hear fashion with the capital f you think of anna wintour but it's like she's not gonna lose her job in the pandemic the makeup artists and the lighting people they lose their jobs
2: yeah i mean they lose work stylists lose work you know, the assistants to the stylists lose work, the seamstresses lose work, the embroiderers, you know, all of these ancillary industries suffer. And I do, one of the stories that, you know, I wrote during this period was that I think, you know, to the fashion industry's detriment to some degree, you know, we think about the small independent restaurants, right, that sort of make up the personality of a neighborhood, but... You know, there's also those small independent boutiques Mm. and designers who give, you know, shopping districts their character. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to go from city to city and see the same major brands in every city. But what typically delights people is not being able to go into the same store that they can go into at home. It's Mm. discovering the store that's unique to a city.
1: I hear you say that, and I think about my Aunt Betty. Uh, Whenever she travels, she wants to check out the Ross and the TJ Maxx in the city she goes to. And I'm (laughs) like, Are you good? You want to find some other stores? She's like, No, I want to see what they got over here. It's amazing to me.
2: (laughs) I am not one to disagree with Aunt Betty.
1: Coming up, we dig deeper into the outdated and kind of broken
3: model of the department store. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost, introducing Wondersuite. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few questions and get a unique, customizable WordPress website or store right away. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. We are still in the middle of this pandemic. And right now, having science news you can trust, from variants to vaccines, is essential. NPR Shortwave has your back. About 10 minutes every weekday, listen and subscribe to Shortwave. The Daily Science Podcast from NPR.
1: So you've outlined the ways in which a somewhat bloated fashion industry kind of ground to a halt with the pandemic and maybe got a nice moment for reset and for pause and to say this was too much. Let's kind of scale down. What happened on the other side with consumers? I mean, it feels as if the story for consumers of clothing and fashion was that A lot of us aren't buying as many clothes anymore because we aren't going out as much. And when we are buying, it's for comfort more so than style. Was that the big trend in terms of consuming fashion and clothing this year or last year?
2: Yeah, I mean, that definitely was the emphasis. You know, if you were a brand that made comfort clothing You were well-positioned. You know, it was interesting that areas that saw increased sales were in things like, you know, hair care and skin care. But what I also found interesting was that there were definitely people who continued to shop and who continued to make those high-end purchases. And what they were, were buying were like the, the super extra special things, the things that um, they sort of thought that they would uh, keep on hold until they could reemerge. Aww. And so, you know, much to really my surprise, hmm. um, it was interesting to see that, you know, brands like Chanel, but also a brand like Hermes did quite well as really? soon as stores reopened in Asia.
1: Really? So, you know, to hear you say that some brands like Chanel did well in spite of, I wonder how all of the flux in fashion that the last year brought affected fast fashion. You know, I feel like when I was going out to buy new clothing, some of it was from some stores that could be considered fast fashion. You know, H and M's, Zara. Uh, I even yeah, I bought some ratty t-shirts at Old Navy last year. Just you know, oh Sam, life.
2: don't do it. Don't do <laughs> I know, it. I know. Resist. Resist. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: how much was fast fashion affected by the events of last year and the pandemic, or did they just keep trucking along because that's what they do?
2: Um, you know, fast fashion already. I think has a squeezes its labor market because it's so cheap. Yeah. And for a lot of companies, you know, the stress that workers saw who were working for higher end labels, they certainly felt it, um, you know, if they were working for fast fashion brands and it was that much more extreme. I I think that the pressures from the pandemic also really sort of revealed the weakest links in that ecosystem, right? So, you know, if you were already a somewhat stressed brand, um, you tended to be an early filer for bankruptcy. I mean, I know this isn't a fast fashion brand, but I think about a company like Neiman Marcus, which was one of the earliest Uh, To file bankruptcy protection. And, you know, in part, you know, you could sort of blame the pandemic on being sort of the final straw, but it was already a very distressed company.
1: Yeah. You know, speaking of stores like Neiman Marcus, it also seems like part of the fashion story of 2020 and pandemic was a continued decline of department stores and people buying things like clothing at department stores. We were already seeing a big push to just buy clothing online before the pandemic hit. Was coronavirus the nail in that coffin? Are we seeing the end of the department store as we know it?
2: Well, I I feel like we've been sort of pre-writing the obit for department stores for a while. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the pandemic was particularly tough and the lack of sales in many ways you know, not to blame the victim, uh, but I, you know, it was really their own fault because in many ways they just sort of started to um, sell by the numbers, buy more of what sold the previous season, except maybe in a different color, mm. oversaturating their customers with sameness and frankly, just offering bad clothing. I mean, there were so many conversations about. You know what's wrong with the Gap, yeah. and um, you know there were many things wrong with the Gap, but you the know, predominantly bad. the clothes were bad.
1: They were, and if you as, and as someone if who product, used to love the Gap, it hurt.
2: Right. So if your product sucks, then <laughs> and that's a technical term.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> then
2: sort of everything else just sort of starts to tumble.
1: Yeah. Well, and also a thing that these big department stores are dealing with, you know, the Neiman Marcuses, the Nordstrom's. They had to take and try to sell all of these new lines these fashion houses were making in the multiple fashion weeks every year. So if it's no longer the spring season and the fall season, every few weeks there's a new drop. These stores buy these clothes, they have to discount them like crazy to move that product. They were in a game that really wasn't doing good numbers for them, period, because of the, you know, sped up fashion cycle. They just had too much clothes to move, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, when you talk to people in the industry, um, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing. One of the big reasons why brands started producing all of these collections was Mm -hmm. because department stores wanted a faster flow of new merchandise onto their floor. The problem was that, you know, the merchandise was not on the sales floor very long before it was sort of being pushed out (laughs) for the next (laughs) flow of merchandise to come in. And so the merchandise would get marked down very quickly and it had very little opportunity to sell at full price. Mm. And consumers became very trained to know that if they just waited a couple of weeks, that merchandise was going to go on sale. Mm -hmm. so consumers had no incentive to really buy things at full price. And the department stores had such clout that, you know, in many cases, they could say to a less powerful brand that, okay, we brought your merchandise in, it was on the sales floor, you know, for four weeks, now we have to mark it down. And so now we want you to basically reimburse us, for the amount that we have to mark this down. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I know, it's just like the dark underbelly of such a glamorous industry.
1: So are you telling me that The Devil Wears Prada is fiction? (laughs) (laughs) Don't say it, don't say it.
2: (laughs) Actually, there are so many things about The Devil Wears Prada that are sadly true.
1: Say <laughs> with us why those Instagram ads for sweatpants they might help save the fashion industry.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover debit card users. Discover has something especially for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can start earning cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back on debit purchases because cash back isn't just for credit cards. Plus, there are no fees, period. Finally, the game-changing checking account you deserve. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I am here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to
1: listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR. If coronavirus ground the fashion industry to a pretty quick halt in 2020... And everyone involved says this has become too bloated, too big, too many clothes, too many runway shows, too many seasons. In the aftertimes, when we are all vaccinated, can the fashion industry, can these stores right size? Can they all shrink in a healthy way and survive and create a new, smaller, more sensible footprint? Is that possible? What does that look
2: like? I, I think I, the answer to that is yes, because I don't really think there's an alternative. You know, mm-hmm. I think in order for the, the fashion industry to move forward, those things will have to occur. Um, some of the very large luxury brands like an Hermes or a Chanel, for instance, mm-hmm. really are self-contained. They own their manufacturing, they own their own stores. Um, you know, they're very much in control of their destiny. And those have been the brands that typically have agitated for a return to the way things have always been. Mm. And then, you know, there's sort of the rest of the fashion universe. And Mm. I I would say that there's a good number of brands that have said, you know, we're not going to produce as as much. Mm. You know, a brand like Carolina Herrera, for instance, in other times, a a single collection might consist of, you know, 900, 1,000 pieces. Wow. And it it was half that for one of their more recent collections. So there definitely is a pulling back. And there certainly is a greater rethinking on the part of smaller brands about how they can deal directly with consumers and cut out the middleman.
1: That's what I want to ask you about kind of as looking towards the future. I think this is the year in which I finally became comfortable ordering clothes that I saw in Instagram ads. And I never would have thought that I would have been the guy who constantly sees the ad for the stretchy flannel shirt in my Instagram stories and then taps yes and buys it. This direct-to-consumer fashion or what I call Instagram fashion Is that the future? Did they win pandemic? And if so, what does that future look like?
2: Yeah, I think they probably did because, you know, if nothing else, with the struggles that larger retailers are having, I think more brands do want to be in charge of their own destiny as much as possible. Mm. Um, But I, you know, I think that in some ways, the fact that you're willing to make these purchases via an ad in your Instagram bodes well for the fashion industry because it means that brands that don't have massive advertising budgets Mm. or massive amounts of money to get some celebrity endorser can make their voices heard through all the noise.
1: Yeah. You know, is there ultimately a risk of the same bloated nature of fashion indirect to consumer models that we saw in the brick and mortar fashion runway show of before pandemic like if fashion of the before times was bloated and fashion Mm -hmm. of the after times is more direct to consumer could that potentially get bloated as well
2: (laughs) um well i think within any business model there's the potential for greed And really greed is what um, propelled the industry to becoming as bloated as it was or as it is. But, you know, the direct-to-consumer model in many ways does allow for a more balanced approach in terms of, you know, sort of supply meeting demand. The other thing that I would sort of say about the direct-to-consumer system, as well as the willingness to you know, buy via Instagram, I think also bodes well to minority and women-owned businesses mm. that often tend to be smaller and not um, as deeply financed. So this is another opportunity, another window, another way for them to make inroads with consumers and to grow their brands.
1: Yeah, yeah. Last question for you. One piece of advice for savvy fashion consumers wanting to capitalize on this moment of like fashion flux. Like is now the right time to flood Neiman Marcus to see what's like on super discount? (laughs) Is now the time to lean into online? Like what's the like life hack for winning fashion right now?
2: You know, my my mantra is always buy less and buy better.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: Because, you know, if nothing else, I think this moment has shown us, this extended endless moment, has shown us that we need a lot less stuff than we thought we did. Mm. And I also think that it has helped sort of clarify Which of the things that we possess are the ones that make us happiest
1: Mm. and the
2: ones that are the most useful? Yeah. And I think if we can kind of remember those um, revelations when we're in stores, I think it'll help us be better consumers, both for our bank account, but also, (laughs) you know, to get all sort of touchy feely, woo woo and all, (laughs) Um, you know, for the environment. And also for the people who manufacture our clothes. You know, I always try to remind people that if you're buying a $10 T-shirt, somewhere Mm. along the way, someone got really screwed in its production. Mm.
1: Yeah. I'm going to be thinking about my uh, old Navy runs in a different light now. (laughs) Maybe fewer of those. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm not completely saying you should never go into, you know, you shouldn't look for a deal or you shouldn't go into Old Navy. But I, I just think that we should do so with much more, um with with greater thought.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, hey, Robin, it's always a treat to talk to you. Let's do it again sometime soon. And, you know, I told you that was my last question, but my last, last question, and this is just for me to feel better about myself, <laughs> you got i mean you are a fashion critic for the washington post but if you can tell me and our listeners that you too own a pair of comfy sweatpants we'll all feel a bit better about ourselves at least one (laughs) at least one
2: i absolutely own sweatpants that i love and are super super comfortable and because i'm weird after i finish my you know work from home day I change out of my clothes and into my sweatpants.
1: (laughs) Thanks again to Robin Gavon. She is the senior critic at large at The Washington Post. All right, listeners, don't forget this Friday, we are back in your feeds with another episode. And for that one, we want to hear from you per usual, sharing the best things that have happened to you all week. Record yourself on your phone and send those audio files to me via email. Email samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, listeners, until Friday, thanks for listening. Be good to yourselves and wear whatever you want. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.
3: This message comes from Wondery with the new podcast, Black History for Real, weaving Black History's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.